1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathahim, a Zuvite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So, in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went out with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. 
Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. Hello. Thank you for an enthusiastic hello there. Um, As we begin, should we pray? Feels like a good place to start. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are present with us. I thank you that you're good. And I pray that you would take my words and speak through them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me level with you to start. As, as I grew up, as a child, I didn't like Advent. Um, and that's not because I'm not a patient person, <laughs> I promise. It's not because I couldn't wait till Christmas. I think it was mainly because I was never allowed a chocolate Advent calendar. Um, every year, my brother and I would petition my, our parents for one, even begging for a fair trade advent calendar in the hope that maybe that would sway the odds in our favor um but no such luck um every year we were told in no uncertain terms advent is a time of waiting so no chocolate for us (laughs) and I felt this particularly acutely in my first year at university living at halls my flatmates and I decided to open our advent calendars together on December 1st Everyone else got chocolate, dairy milk, crunchy, even a Twix. And I got a hearty piece of scripture. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Man shall not live by Advent chocolate alone. Advent is about waiting. And that phrase lives rent-free in my head. In our series on miraculous births, we looked last week at the birth of Samson, a similar story to the one just read to us from 1 Samuel. A barren woman is told or discovers that she is going to bear a son. That child is dedicated to God from the womb, set aside to serve God in a particular way to bring relief and respite to Israel from their oppressors. And as Eddie spoke about last week, all these stories of miraculous births are a foreshadowing of Jesus's miraculous birth that we're going to celebrate in about four weeks' time at Christmas. And today we're going to think about Samuel's miraculous birth, but we're going to do it through the lens of Advent, because Advent is about the miraculous birth of hope. Advent is about waiting. Or in the words of theologian Fleming Rutledge, Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. And so does this passage. 
Now, although in our Bibles, this story comes after the book of Ruth, chronologically, it actually comes after Judges, um, because Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges. Um, And what you need to know about Judges, if you don't already, is that it is not a happy book. There are moments of light, but overall, Judges charts the descent of Israel into immorality. The repeated phrase throughout the book of Judges, and indeed how Judges ends in chapter 21, verse 25, is this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And the subtext of that is simple. Chaos. Moral and actual chaos. Everyone did as they saw fit. And one of the final chapters of Judges shows us just how low the Israelites have sunk. In Judges 19, a Levite and his concubine, it tells the story of an unnamed woman being gang-raped, killed, and mutilated. Israel is a community in moral chaos. It is troubled and waiting. It is being pressured by the power of the Philistines. You remember those from Samson's story. And it is economically disadvantaged. Israel is engaged in brutality and has neither the capacity nor the will to extricate itself from its troubles. Everyone did as they saw fit. It is waiting, it is longing for a king. A king who will protect and defend and gather and liberate and legitimate the community. Sound familiar? The king that Israel is waiting for in this period is David, but they don't know that yet. We start our passage today in that context of painful, uncertain waiting. Advent is about waiting. And as we zoom in from Israel more generally to Hannah specifically, we find a similar situation. We are in the midst of uncertain, painful waiting. This story begins with desperate need. Hannah is a childless woman in a tribal society in which contempt is heaped on women who do not deliver population growth. And I just want to pause here for a minute because there may be people here for whom a sermon titled Miraculous Births feels like it's pushing on a bruise because you are in a similar position of deep desire for a child. And if you read this story too literally, you could be left feeling that Hannah's story means you just need to pray harder or be a better person, and then you'll get what you want. But that's not the moral of Hannah's story. God is not some kind of jukebox that delivers what you want if you put the right coins in. It is not the case that you do not have what you desire because you don't have enough faith or haven't prayed hard enough. That's a lie. And I cannot and will not promise you that what you most desire will happen to you eventually. But what I can promise you is that Advent is a season that may well minister deeply to your soul. That to find yourself in the waiting, in the heartache, in the longing is to find yourself in a place where God can minister to you in a profound way. Please stay with us as we journey through this story. But also, if this is feeling too raw for you right now, do feel free to quietly tune out. 
And don't leave here without praying with someone. Back to the story. Hannah is a woman in desperate need. She has a husband who doesn't really understand her pain. Verse 8, not his finest hour. And another woman who keeps provoking her again and again until she weeps and refuses to eat. This woman is rubbing her nose into the fact that she can produce children and Hannah cannot. I would imagine that the sadness and loneliness weighed heavy on Hannah's soul. Advent begins in the dark. And so Hannah turns to God, to Yahweh, to the Lord. And it's worth noting here that Hannah does not turn to one of the other gods that would have been floating around Israelite society at this point. Remember, we're at the end of the period of the judges, and Israel isn't covering itself in glory with regards to following their one true God. And so the fact that Hannah turns to Yahweh, to the Lord, rather than to, for example, Asherah, who was the fertility goddess, is actually a really important piece of context here. She turns to the Lord. Advent should push us to call out to God. As we stand in the darkness of the beginning of Advent with a deep longing, a heavy sadness at the state in which we and the world find ourselves, we, like Hannah, should be drawn to turn to God. Hannah stands in the temple and she prays, Lord Almighty, Yahweh, do not forget your servant. We stand in the darkness of Advent and we pray, Lord, have mercy. Come, Lord Jesus. Hannah does not go via Eli, the priest, to bring a prayer to God. Instead, she goes directly to the Lord, offering him the prayer of her heart. Hannah brings her darkness and her pain and her waiting before the Lord. Advent moves us to do the same. Hannah is trapped in a place of darkness and she has no one else to turn to except God. Advent too begins in the dark. Hannah has realised she's acknowledged that she is powerless, so she turns to the one who is powerful. Advent reminds us that we too are powerless in the face of our sin, in the face of the darkness of the world. And so we are drawn to cry out once again, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Hannah asks God for help. She trusts that he will deliver, even promising her future child into the Lord's service. We can do the same. As we pray out in the darkness of the beginning of Advent, we have had the down payment of a promise. We have the incarnation And we have the promise of Jesus' return. Advent begins in the dark. I wonder if you've ever prayed like Hannah does. Poured out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Being completely, profoundly honest with God about the weight of sadness and longing in your heart. Personally, corporately, globally. I remember when I was about eight years old, uh, praying with my family, things were very difficult for my brother at school for a variety of reasons. And my parents had kind of reached the end of themselves as they tried to work out how to fix it. 
We were praying together as a family, and I remember hearing for the first time my mum starting to pray in tongues. And I honestly thought she'd gone mad. She was making noises that I didn't understand. She was holding my brother close, and she was praying words I'll never know. She was praying her heart. And in the way that only an eight-year-old could, I turned to my dad, and in what can only be described as a stage whisper, said, what is she doing? (laughs) He quietly explained to me that sometimes when people don't have any words left to pray, but they still have lots of things they want to bring to God, God gives them a new language to express their heart, a prayer language, if you will. Whatever your views on spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues, the point still stands. Sometimes we don't have words to pray what we need to pray. And God, in his kindness, finds ways for us to bring these burdens before him and lay them down. I wonder if you've ever prayed like that. Have you ever acknowledged the weight of sadness and distress, desire and grief all tangled up within you before God? To be able to pray like that, we have to be able to acknowledge our helplessness in the face of a situation. We have to be able to acknowledge the darkness that surrounds the desire we have within us for things to be different, but our inability to do anything about it. To pray like that, we have to look outside of ourselves for a solution. And as we journey through Hannah, with Hannah through this prayer, this outpouring of her heart, we are invited by the narrator of 1 Samuel to listen and to notice something. That even amid barren hopelessness, fruitful waiting, hoping and receiving can indeed happen. That even in the midst of hopelessness, hope is possible when you turn to the Lord. Advent begins in the dark, but it doesn't end in the dark. Hope is possible. Hope is already present We know how this story ends. Throughout this passage about Hannah and her desire, we find that God, the Lord, Yahweh, stands at the center of every scene. In verses 5 and 6, we read that God had closed her womb. In verse 17, Eli prays that the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, would grant Hannah's petition. In verse 19, we read that the Lord remembered her. How kind are those words? Imagine being remembered by the Lord. The Lord remembered her. And in verse 27, Hannah herself says, the Lord has granted me my petition. Verse 20, I asked the Lord for him. The subject of this story is God's faithfulness, his listening ear, his responsive action. The Lord stands at the center of this narrative. Even in the midst of darkness and despair, God is at the center. And because of that, hope is possible. This passage is fundamentally about God. And it's about waiting. You can tell that because we're given 19 verses on the waiting and only one on the birth. the narrator is inviting us to notice that even amid barren hopelessness, 
fruitful waiting, hoping and receiving can indeed happen. Advent begins in the dark. This narrative invites us to wait in our trouble with a focus on God, to seek out his faithfulness even in the midst of difficult circumstances, to know that even if we do not get what we want, what we think we need, God remains good and kind and faithful. This is an Advent narrative. Advent begins in the dark and it always pushes us towards hope outside of ourselves. You see, hope and promise are at the centre of the Advent proclamation. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Advent means acknowledging the darkness. Fleming Rutledge talks about taking a fearless inventory of the darkness. Realising that we are helpless without something outside of ourselves stepping in, just like Israel with its descent into moral brutality, just like Hannah with her inability to have children, just like us in the face of our sin and the brokenness of the world around us. Advent pushes us to hope in the one who has proved himself over and over and over again. Advent focuses our hope on the only thing that could ever save us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Advent begins in the dark. But it ends with the brightest of all the lights. It ends with the light of the world coming into the darkness, banishing it for good. Emmanuel, God with us. Fundamentally, we, the church, we're an Advent people. Living between the now and the not yet, between Jesus' incarnation and his second coming, this coming season, we remember his birth and we anticipate his return in glory. Where there will be no more tears or mourning or crying or pain, we anticipate his return in glory. We wait with hope because we know how this story ends. And as we close, I want to spend some time in quiet reflection. Perhaps you have been struck anew by the faithfulness and power of God. Perhaps you want to spend some time in deep prayer like Hannah did, bringing before Jesus all that weighs heavy upon your soul. Or perhaps you just want to reflect quietly on the power of the Advent season. Advent begins in the dark. And so I'm going to ask Edmund to get the lights And we're going to sit together in darkness just for a few minutes. If you are in a time of waiting, of sadness, of darkness, or of seeming hopelessness, Advent is your season. The Lord is near. And as we sit together in this darkness, I'm going to start with silence, and then I'm going to read an Advent poem. It's called The Weight of Waiting. Perhaps you can use it as a prayer. Let's be silent for a minute. Advent begins in the dark. We think of waiting as uncomfortable. Waiting for, waiting with, waiting in. It is a child waiting, counting down the days until a celebration. A colleague waiting, longing 
for the weekend. An expectant mother waiting, yearning for the birth of the one inside her. We think of waiting as uncomfortable, heavy, weighty. But what if waiting is where you're supposed to be? What if the weight of waiting was not uncomfortable? What if the weight of waiting was like a duvet on a cold winter's night, heavy but soothing and warm, like a child on your knee, weighty yet solid and secure? What if the weight of waiting was the weight of expectation, living in the sure and certain hope that what is promised will come, that what is promised will not fail? What if the weight of waiting was not the weight of external forces asking questions and pushing conclusions into your world, but a friend sitting beside you, hand on yours, breathing each moment with you as you wait? What if the weight of waiting was the weight of certainty, a knowledge that you belong in this moment, in the waiting? in the now and the not yet? What if the weight of waiting was the weight of hope? A trust in the one who has asked you to wait for his word, spoken into the darkness, his word made flesh, making its dwelling among us. What if the weight of waiting is exactly where you're supposed to be. What then? Then you sit in expectation and certainty and hope, ignoring the world's instructions for you to hurry up and move along because time is running out for the weight of waiting is lived out in the knowledge that there is a time for everything and time is in his hands the hands of the one who has asked you to wait in the uncertainty, the stillness, and the quiet whisper of not yet. The weight of waiting is found in the joy of singing out, great is your faithfulness, of never ceasing to cry, come Lord Jesus, even in the weight of the waiting. And it is there that you learn that the weight of the waiting is just the moments before the fulfillment of a promise. So you can find me in the waiting, learning slowly to wait in the quiet, in the stillness, in the uncertainty, right now. As the lights come back up, should we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you that you are with us even in the waiting. You invite us into this time of Advent to discover you once again in the quietest and the most unlikely of places. Be with us, Father. Sometimes waiting's really hard. Thank you, Jesus, that you're with us. 
in your powerful name. Amen. Amen.